Good morning, church. Uh, before I dive too deep into the message this morning, I just wanted to take a uh, personal note to begin with and thank you as a church community. Uh, this is, as many of you know, the church community that I was essentially born in um, and was baptized in and raised in and invested in and loved on by so many of you in such uh, good ways that continued in, into the present for my family and I. And I just wanted to thank you for that and encourage you in that to continue investing and loving that way in the young people that you have in your church community. Um, but today we are going to be centered on what is the theological reality of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And I know that that can sound pretty technical and scary, um, but the reality is that today is Trinity Sunday in the church calendar. Now, for background information, uh, the church calendar is an annual teaching cycle that the church has used for over 1,600 years on every continent, in every culture, to walk through the story of who God is and what God has done in Jesus Christ. And last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, in which the church all across the world celebrated the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church, as told in Acts 2. And this week, following it every year, the next Sunday is Trinity Sunday, in which we acknowledge the central teaching of the Christian faith, that God is one being existing as a perfect community of three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we could get really technical and philosophical this morning in talking about the co-eternal and co-equal qualities of the three persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the ominous question that always hangs over Trinity Sunday is, why is this doctrine relevant to our real lives? Why is the doctrine of the Holy Trinity the central teaching of Christianity? And what does it mean for us each and every day? And to do that today, we're going to explore uh, with the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. And I've been told that in uh, recent weeks, this congregation has been reading the text together from the screen aloud. And so we're going to continue that practice today, but it's going to be a little different because we're going to invite more participation from you as the congregation in the sense that after the reading is completed, there will be an additional slide that contains an invitation from me as the uh, reader here in the pulpit to you as the congregation to respond with gratitude and accept the word of God for us today. And so all that it will simply be is when the reading is concluded, I will invite you by saying this is the word of God for the people of God and you together as a church will respond with thanks be to God. So, again, the passage is Romans chapter 12, verses, or Romans 8, 12 through 17, sorry, and I will step out of the way so that we can read it together. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
for you have received the spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. It is that very spirit witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now I want to also uh, note a little preface. I'll be here next week, so if you don't like this week, then take it or leave it. Um, But this week's message and next week's message are going to be deeply interrelated. And the reality of this week is that we're going to be doing a lot of heavy lifting and deep thinking and reflecting in order to get to a very practical side of things next week. And when dealing with any text, like this week, we need to be aware of context. Now, scholars are unanimous in agreeing that Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, and this genre, this book of the Bible, is known as an epistle. It was a letter written by Paul to the Christians at the church in Rome at the time. And the reason a lot of the epistles were written in the New Testament as we have them is because there were problems in the early church. Imagine that. Problems in local churches. I think a lot of us are more like the local church than we might know. Um, But the problem that was emerging in the church of Rome was an ethnic tension between Jewish Christians and another group known as Gentile Christians. And the problem that was welling up within their community was the fact that Jewish Christians were afraid that if their Gentile sisters and brothers did not practice Jewish customs of faith, such as circumcision or food laws regarding what they could eat as clean or unclean, they were worried that their Gentiles, their Gentile Christians in their church would not inherit the fullness of salvation available to them in Jesus Christ. It's a good reason to be afraid. But what Paul does with surgical precision in this epistle is he actually takes their situation and turns it on its head with this theological teaching of justification by faith through grace alone. And essentially what he communicates through the entirety of the letter up to this point in our passage in Romans chapter 8 is that all people, regardless of their ethnicity or any other cultural markings, stand on equal footing before God, justified by His grace alone and not anything that we do as people in our cultures. And he exposes then this central truth, the reality of the Trinity in Romans chapter 8, where our passage is situated today. And he begins the chapter by discussing the nature of freedom. The freedom that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And as has already been mentioned this morning, freedoms and especially poignant topic this weekend, as tomorrow is Memorial Day, and people all across our country celebrate, honor, and remember those who have paid the ultimate cost for the cause of freedom in our country. And that's a good thing. And we need to recognize that freedom is a multi-dimensional reality. Often we don't take that into account when thinking about freedom. We think about freedom as We are free from something. 
But the reality is that just as we are free from something in freedom, we are also empowered and free for something else. And if you need an illustration of these interrelated aspects of being free from and free for, I can't think of a clearer one than how freedom is being played out in our school communities across the country. Because the reality is that in this day and age, in our culture, students and teachers are being robbed of their freedom. Regardless of what you might think politically about this issue, the reality is that students and teachers and administrators are on some level becoming not free to educate, to participate in an education, to form social relationships in communities of trust, and most importantly for the students, to be students and enjoy those changes and transitions and new experiences in life because they're not free for those things because they're not free from the tyranny and darkness of the threat of a mass killing taking place in their community. And that should be unacceptable to us on a number of levels as Christians. Most importantly, because it is a threat, a denial to the very freedom that Paul is talking about in our passage. The freedom that God has given humanity in Jesus Christ. The freedom from the darkness of sin and bondage to death to be for our neighbors. To fully love God and love other people. And Paul gets to the heart of it in our passage with an especially powerful statement. He says in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And the reality is that this statement invites quite a bit of clarification. Who is the Spirit of God? Where is the Spirit of God leading the children of God? What does it mean to be a child of God? And we're going to try and unpack that this morning in the remainder of our time together. And one of the things that's important to know is that uh, God Himself, He's transcendent. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's sovereign. And so language, human language, and human imagination cannot capture who He is in His supremacy. So one of the things that theologians often do to clarify who God is and His nature is to say what God is not. It's called the method of negation. And so when, when we ask who the Holy Spirit is, we need to be clear in saying who the Holy Spirit is not. The Spirit of God is not an inanimate force or power that human beings can harness for our control. The Holy Spirit is not something like you might see in Star Wars, like the Force, even though another movie in that series came out just this very week. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of good vibes or positive energy that people somehow share between one another. And the Holy Spirit is not some kind of cosmic system of payback for good actions and bad actions like karma. No, the Holy Spirit, as Scripture tells us, in the words of Jesus Himself, is our advocate. The Holy Spirit is a person of God who is for us. 
not against us. The Holy Spirit, as the Christian creed affirms, is the Lord and giver of life who infuses the beauty in the life of reality as we know it and blesses everything that we experience in creation. As Psalm 139 points out, there is nowhere that the Spirit of God is not present. This is what it means to be a person of God. He is transcendent. He is transcendent of all time and space and possesses the ability to then fill all time and space with His presence so that we can experience the love of God together. And it is Paul in this statement in verse 14 who captures this reality when he pictures this intimate nearness of the Spirit to the children of God at all times. It is the Spirit who is leading the children of God. And the Spirit of God leads the children of God to the Son, another person of the Trinity. We see this in our own passage in the final verse when Paul points out that we are co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ. See, the reality is that the Holy Spirit, as John's Gospel points out, functions to glorify the Son. He's always inviting and evoking worship of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. He is present with us in all time and space and intimately near to us so that we have the opportunity to freely respond in love toward God. The Holy Spirit is the one who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament, who inspires Scripture for us today, who illumines all of human reason, who confronts us in the beauty that we experience in artistic expression, and the Spirit is the one who empowers everything that is good in our world. And all of this is so that the Son may be glorified through our faith and our unity with the Son in His resurrection life. The Spirit leads the children of God to God the Son in the love of God the Father. Paul captures this in our passage today. And I realize that in a culture like ours today, it's important that we recognize that the language of God as Father can be exceedingly difficult for some of us in the room. Because the reality is that a study in 2014 found that almost 25%, one in four children in America, do not have a father. And of those who do have fathers present in their life, we know that this is a broken world. And not all fathers are good. Experiences of abuse and neglect and deep pain that people have and carry with them because they do not have a good father results in confusion when the language of God as father is used blatantly and without explanation. It may even cause people to reject who God is because of the poor representation of God they've received from their parents. And I think that the ingenious imagination of a Scottish minister who lived long ago named George MacDonald can offer us a lot of help this morning 
in regard to what it means that God is our Father. See, George MacDonald, as I said, lived long ago, and he took it upon himself to start writing children's fiction that expressed deep theological truths. Uh, if you're not familiar with his work, perhaps you're more familiar with one of the people that he actually inspired and motivated to do the same. His name is C.S. Lewis. So if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia or the Screwtape Letters or the Great Divorce or any other works of the mastermind that is C.S. Lewis, know that that all stems from the influence and legacy of George MacDonald. And in one of George MacDonald's more famous works, entitled The Princess and the Goblin. I would recommend it for those of you who might need some summer reading. Um, he captures the reality of the relationship between Jesus the Son and the Father through a fictional story in which he tells of a child going to Grandma's house. And that's the essence of the relationship. Because in going to Grandma's house, it's a place of acceptance, of unconditional love, of belonging. It's a place we all long to be. And this is the essence. This is the very nature of what it means that God is our Father. And this is the reality of what Paul is getting at here because as he rightfully points out, we stand with Christ in faith when we depend on our Father. These words, Abba, Father, that are in our passage today are taken directly out of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14 when Jesus is praying in the garden in the darkest moment. And when He says, not my will, but Your will be done. Not what I want, Father, but what You want. Because You are good. You are loving and you cannot be stopped in beholding your beloved children. And this points to the essential nature of the doctrine of the Trinity for us in our real, concrete lives that we live each day. Because the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is not something that we are merely to rationally understand and to communicate with precise language. And don't get me wrong, it's important that we have clear and concise teaching. But the reality is that God doesn't want us to just understand in our heads. He wants us to understand who He is with the innermost part of our being. And Paul points to this reality in our passage when he talks about the witness of the Spirit. The Spirit leading the children of God to the Son in the love of the Father and when we rely on our Father through the resurrection life of the Son, it is the Spirit who witnesses to our spirit in the innermost part of our being that we are beloved children of God. That we are of inherent worth, incomprehensible value, worthy of dignity and respect, not because of what you do, but because you have a Father who loves you unconditionally. As John Wesley pointed out, rightfully, in reflecting on this very passage, the witness of the Spirit is not a prerequisite for salvation. It's not necessary for faith, but it is the privilege of every believer. God wants you to know that you are His beloved. 
and that you are of immense value because you are created in his image. And this is the freedom that is the reality of the Holy Trinity. Because the children of God, through the Spirit, in the life of the Son, have a good Father to trust. They are free from the bondage of fear and self-preservation. They are free from the fear of providing because they trust and know that they have a Father who will provide for them. And the ultimate assurance of that is stamped and sealed in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. The reality of the leading of the Spirit takes most seriously the doctrine of the physical resurrection. That Jesus really is alive. And He is a real person who is beckoning us to His life and love through the Spirit in the love of the Father. And this is where the application of this sermon comes because it cuts deep and it's sharp and it gets to the very essence of what it means to be a human person. And it could unfold in a variety of ways. But I'm going to develop a few of them for us today. And what we're going to do is we're going to close with a time of prayer before Rhonda comes and leads us um, beautifully in the doxology as we are sent out. But in this time of prayer, it's important to know where we are situated as individuals and as a faith community in reference to the Holy Trinity. We live in a post-Christian culture, and so it's highly likely that there might be people in here today who do not identify as Christian. They've never professed faith. And that's okay. We're glad you're here. I would ask that if that's you today, that you would be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because the reality is you can't escape the leading of the Holy Spirit. You can simply choose to acknowledge it in faith or reject it. But the Spirit is always leading, always empowering, always giving life, and always inviting us to come closer to Christ. So if you are not a Christian, I'm not going to ask you to make a decision today for faith. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come to the altar. I'm going to ask that you simply open yourself up and wait for the Spirit to move and lead you in your life to the real living person of Jesus Christ. Who I promise you, when you come to His presence, it will be a distinctly different experience. You will know when the Sovereign Creator, when He is present with you, and the fear that overcomes you in that reality, yet at the same time, you feel more beloved, more beheld, and more well-known than you ever have in your entire life. This is where the Spirit wants to lead you into the freedom that is God's salvation. Would you be open to that today? I promise you won't be disappointed where the Spirit leads. There are others of us in the room today who need to know, deeply know, that they are beloved children of God. 
people carry around open wounds that never get healed because of the way society has treated them, because how they've been labeled, because how they've been cast aside, because of the real physical, psychological, and emotional damage that others have inflicted on them without mercy. And it is those people who need to know that they have a Father who loves them. They need to know that they are dignified people created in the image of God. And if that's you today, if you're carrying those wounds, take the courage. Step out in faith. Ask that God would witness to your spirit that you are his beloved child of an incomprehensible value with gifts and abilities that no other person has that you can contribute. But there's a final way that I think this sermon especially hits home today. And it's the group that I often slip into. The group that I often most identify with. And it's the reality that for those of us in this group, it's a confronting question to ask if we're led by the Spirit to the Son and the love of the Father. Because we know that whether for moments or seasons of life, or maybe our entire lives. Paul's telling us that the children of God are led by the Spirit of God, but in reality, we've taken that truth and flipped it. We want to lead the Spirit. Whether it's our ideas about God that become God to us, or it's ourselves that we make God in authority over our lives. The reality is that those of us in this last group, whether for moments or entire seasons of life, whether intentionally or unintentionally, dangerously live life without being open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because the reality, as Paul points it out here, is that the Spirit is abundantly alive, on the move, near to us in all things. As theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer rightfully points out, the Spirit is the beyond, the depth in the midst of our life that confronts us in everything that is good and calls us into unity with God and our neighbor. And those of us who don't actively follow the leading of the Spirit, we even do good things. We take on tasks for the kingdom of God and pray that God would bless them with His presence and power. But in reality, we never took time on the front end to ask if that's how God wanted to move. If that's how God wanted to use our time, our physical bodies, and our resources.
for the purposes of His kingdom. We vote for political agendas. We spend our money. We use our time. And we make plans for the future without any reference to God at times. It's dangerous to have a living God. A God who's on the move. A God who cannot be contained. A God who is sovereign. And a God whose purposes cannot be stopped. It's dangerous to follow the God of the living Bible. The God who confronts us in Scripture. The God who is abundantly on the move. Because the reality is that we might want a God who's comfortable. Who lines up with our perspective, our opinions, and our perception of reality. We don't want a God who can confront us because that's dangerous to us and He can make demands of us that are real and potentially uncomfortable. And so if, if you're with me in that category this morning of realizing that you don't spend every day in active listening for the Spirit to lead you, perhaps this morning is a time for confession. And to ask that the Spirit would make Himself abundantly clear to you each day anew. So that you could be led to the freedom in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ in the love of God the Father. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for this day. And we thank You for Your Word to us this morning. God, help us to be people who are led by Your Spirit as individuals in a church community. Help us to know that You are good, that You are on the move, and that You are inviting us into relationship with Yourself, which is the greatest gift of all. I'd ask that You would empower us with Your Spirit to go out this week as Your church and that You would set us in places of great influence for Your kingdom so that Your life and love may be shared more abundantly with our neighbors. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, You are sent out by the leading of the Spirit into the resurrection life of the Son, in the love of the Father.